0: Okay, we are in the uh, letter to the Romans and uh, up to chapter 8, uh, verses 12 to 17. Uh, so we're, we're working our way consecutively through Romans and uh, we're in the greatest chapter in the Bible, uh, apparently, which isn't entirely true because ev- every chapter is great. Uh, but chapter 8 is um, one that uh, it's just yeah, it has so many wonderful, um, encouraging truths uh, for us. Okay, so Romans 8, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 12 to 17. Hear God's word. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and it's all useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So Lord, we pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, take your word now and work in us what what needs to happen in our lives. We pray, Father, that if we are uh, discouraged at the moment, that your word would be an encouragement, Uh, that if we are lost, that through this we would be found. Uh, Father, that if if we are doubting, that you would bring um, certainty, uh, that your spirit would bear witness uh, with our spirits that we are children of God. And we pray that you would uh, teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so as you uh, might have noticed in the reading, this, this passage, it's all about the Holy Spirit. In fact, this passage in uh, Romans 8, it's one of the main passages in the whole Bible that is about the Holy Spirit and the, the, the role that he has in our lives. And uh, it's actually a really helpful passage because you might have noticed there's a whole lot of little phrases in here that we tend to use a lot. You know, Christians use these little phrases quite a lot, and yet we might not know exactly what they mean. You know how sometimes Christian lingo can, can get a little, you know, the meaning can get a, bit, a little bit lost? Uh, so let me give you some examples. Um, did you notice that phrase, led by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Or this other one, that the Spirit bears witness uh, with our spirit. Now, how does He do that? Is that an audible voice that you hear? I mean, what does it mean that the Spirit, Spirit bears witness with our spirits? Uh, is it a feeling that you, that you get? Like, how does it actually work? And then there's the whole question of, uh, how does the Holy Spirit help us to, to grow as Christians? You know, uh, let's say you're struggling with a particular sin, that maybe that sin has become a habit. How does the Holy Spirit help you deal with that? Because that, that's also answered um, in this passage. So it's a very uh, practical um, passage, very helpful. And uh, all of these questions that I've raised, they're all answered in here. So let's, let's get into it. There's actually three things that we're told that the Holy Spirit does in our lives in this passage. Three things. The first one is that the Spirit enables us to kill sin. The Spirit enables us to kill sin. And so you see that in verses 12 to 13. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we have the task that every single believer has to engage with, this task of putting sin to death in our lives. And uh, what we've been seeing in Romans is that through the work of Christ, we are already set free from the condemnation of sin. So the penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin has also been broken. So we're set free from that. However, what we've seen in Romans is that the presence of sin still remains in us. Now, we still live in our fallen bodies. We're still waiting for the final chapter in salvation when Christ comes again and renews our bodies then we will be free from the presence of sin but until that until the end until the end of our lives we have the presence of sin and so what is life like for believers it's a fight there's an inner warfare with sin and it's one that we all need to engage in but how do we go about that How do we put sin to death in our lives? And that's what verse 13 tells us. It says, by the Spirit, okay, by the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Now, I want to really focus on this this verse, but especially this word. It's one word in the original language, but it's, it's translated, you put to death. Now, that word you put to death, there's so much we can learn just from that one word. And uh, the first, um, sorry to bring a a grammar lesson, um, but the verb, it's in the active voice. Now, don't worry too much about that. It just means that this is something that you have to do. Okay, It's not in the passive voice, which would be something that's done to you. When it says you put to death, it's saying you have to actively do this. This is not something you can sit back and go, well, I'll I'll leave it up to God. No, no, you have to put sin to death. The responsibility is put on us as believers to kill sin. However, you'll notice it's done in dependence on the Holy Spirit. See, it says, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. And so that's saying that the only way we can kill sin in our lives is by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So the, the two are working together. It's, it's us and the Holy Spirit working together in our lives to kill sin. Uh, so it's the Spirit who actually empowers our efforts. Okay, So that's an active thing. Now the other thing to notice about this verb, put to death, it's in the present tense. And when a verb is in the present tense, it means it's something that's continually going all the time. Putting sin to death is not something you do once and then you're finished. It's something you do continually, over and over, every single day. This is a 24-7 full-time job of killing sin in your life. Uh, This is something that that there's no downtime. There's no lunch breaks when it comes to killing sin. This is something you've got to do all the time, uh, which means that you've got to do it when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're on the way to work, driving to work, you've got to kill sin then. Uh, it's, it's something that you have to do while you're watching TV, while you're on your phone or your computer, while you're interacting with other people. Okay, All the time, it's a continuous job putting sin to death. And uh, that's, that's really what characterizes a true believer. A true believer is someone who is continually putting sin to death. And that means we're actually to be engaged in this like an all-out war. This is something that we have to fight on every single front in our lives. Uh, we're, to, we're really to go after everything in us that is still opposed to God and to go after it and to kill it. And so this is saying to us that we don't pick and choose which sins we think we should put to death while just ignoring the rest. <clears throat> Remember, um, about a month ago, we talked about um, respectable sins. Uh, there was a book written called Respectable Sins that says that there's certain sins that, that, are, that are commonly accepted in, in churches, you know, among church-going folk. Uh, things like gossip, impatience, <clears throat> Um, anger, you know, those sort of things. But what we see here is that there's no such thing as respectable sins, okay? They all have to go. They all have to die. We've got to go after all of them. Every attitude, every thought, every behavior that opposes God, we are to go after it and kill it. And so you actually to think about sin in your life the same kind of way that you think about white ants in your house, Okay, no, I'm pretty sure anyone here who owns a house doesn't say, oh, a few white ants won't hurt. You don't say that. Or if that illustration doesn't work, you got to think about sin in your life like, uh, like you would holes in a submarine. You don't go, oh, it's only a small hole. It doesn't matter. No, it, it can't be like that. You've got to go 100% refusal to make peace with any sin. Okay, this is one area where we actually have permission to be absolutely intolerant. See? Intolerant of sin in our lives. This is, this is one area where we, we must be totally inflexible. You know, one area where we should be completely stiff-necked in our absolute refusal to let sin reign in our bodies. And so it has to be an all-out war. And in fact, until we declare an all-out war on every sin... We won't make any progress in holiness, in personal holiness. Uh, It has to be all out. And, And the other thing that I just want to say about that word, you know, you put to death, it does say death, okay? Put it to death. It doesn't say put it in a closet or put it outside or put it sort of in a hidden compartment. It says you put to death the deeds of the body which means that sin is not something that you can manage in your life. It's not something that you can kind of tame or, um, you know, keep, but keep it under control. It doesn't work like that. A few weeks ago, we talked about sin being like a, a tiger. You know, if you try to keep a pet tiger, eventually it grows up and it takes over. <laughs> it rules and it eats you. Uh, and that's the thing with sin, you, you can't keep it like it. It can't be like a secret pet that you have hidden away and every now and then you get, you get out and you play with it and then you put it away again. It can't be like that. It has to be put it to death, kill it. In fact, verse 13, it does say, let's read the whole verse again. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And when it says die there, it's actually talking about eternal separation from God. Uh, Then it says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, a a book was written in the 17th century about that one verse, a whole book. It's a famous book that has been read by uh, millions and millions of Christians over the last 300 years. It continues to be sold in bookshops. It's called The Mortification of Sin, written by John Owen. And he wrote the whole book just on that verse, but he summed up this verse in such a memorable way when he wrote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Okay, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And that's, that's a statement that anyone who hears that, they go, boy, I've got to write that on my wall. <laughs> be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Because implied in that is a warning. Do you hear the warning implied in that? Be killing sin or what? It will be killing you. And verse 13 does talk about death, as in lost forever. See, what this is saying is that if, if you are someone who is not killing sin, if you are someone who is, according to verse 13, living according to the flesh, then that's someone who, who actually doesn't belong to Christ. Because if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit, and therefore you will be killing sin. So there is a warning, and the warning is you actually should be troubled if there's no resistance to sin in your life. That should trouble you deeply. But on the other side of that warning is the encouragement, and the encouragement is, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, don't hear that as like, you know, that's, that's this works mentality that, oh, if I, if I kill sin in my life, then I'll earn eternal life. Paul's not an idiot. He wouldn't contradict everything else he says in Romans by, by putting it like that. No, what he's saying here is that killing sin is what characterizes True believers. Okay, this is evidence that the spirit is in your life, that you actually don't tolerate sin, that you do go after it and kill it. And so if you are someone who is you know engaged in that battle and perhaps you're feeling a little bit weary because it's never ending, because it is a twenty four seven job, and sometimes you feel like this is just too hard, it's going on and on and on. But actually be encouraged the fact that you feel the fight, the fact that you're engaged in it, that's not a sign that there's something wrong with you. It's a sign of life. It's a sign that the Spirit is in you. And so there's encouragement in that. And so just to finish this point off, here's some things that we we all ought to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Every day, we should actually be identifying sin in our lives. Actually noting what it is that we need to put to death. And every day we should be repenting of both the behaviour, you know, the sinful behaviour, but also the motive behind it. Okay, we've got to think, why do I keep doing that sin? You know, why do I keep getting impatient with a certain person? Why do, I, why do I keep doing those things? Because until we repent of the motive behind it, it will just keep happening. Every day we need to be intentional in our prayers about things that we're struggling with, we should actually have an ongoing list of particular sins that we are bringing before God every day, asking for help. That's what it means to put it to death by the Spirit. You know, we're we're depending on Him uh, to help us do that. And and look, if there is a particular sin that you're struggling with at the moment, you know, something that has become a habit, something that you're finding hard to actually hate, then what you need to do with that is you need to take that sin, you need to drag it to the foot of the cross, you need to look at the cross and to look at what Jesus went through to pay for your sin, and then look at the sin in light of that. Okay, Look look at what your sin did to your Saviour. And when you look at that, then what what happens? You hate your sin. You You don't want it anymore. You want to be rid of it. And that's where the power is. The power is actually in in Christ himself. See, Jesus, he's defeated the power of sin for us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And therefore, killing sin is possible and killing sin is necessary. See, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So that's the first thing. The Spirit enables us to kill sin. Now, second, uh, we see that the Spirit's uh, work in our lives uh, is that he comes into our life as a pledge of sonship. A pledge of sonship. Now, what, what that means is having this Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we are sons of God. Sons of God. So you see that in verses 14 to 15. <clears throat> uh, let's look at verse 14, though. It says, for though, uh, sorry, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, it's important to see how verse 14 is connected to what came just before it, Uh, because Paul has been talking about how the Spirit enables us to kill sin, and then he says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And so that helps us understand what that phrase means, led by the Spirit. Remember I raised that at the start? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I mean, that's something we, we always talk about. You know, that, that's a spirit led person, or, you know, I felt led by the spirit to do X, Y, and Z. You now, we use this phrase all the time, but what does it actually mean? So, I think often when we use it, we tend to think of it in terms of uh, the spirit giving us um, guidance, you know, helping us make decisions. So, we might say something like, um, you know, I felt the spirit leading me to take a certain job, or I felt the spirit leading me to. Um, you know, pack up and move to another city, or I felt the Spirit leading me to have a conversation with a certain person about Jesus. In other words, it's it's saying you know we tend to think being led by the Spirit is helping us make um, decisions, but when you look at verse fourteen in light of verse thirteen, and notice that little word at the start, for which is a connecting word, you actually realize <clears throat> that being led by the Spirit isn't talking about guidance it's talking about godliness okay to be led by the spirit is the same thing as putting sin to death in your life see those led by the spirit are those who are following the spirit's lead in putting sin to death that's what it means to be led by the spirit so who are the spirit led people the people who are practicing verse 13 that's a spirit led person are you led by the spirit Are you being led by the Spirit? How do you know? Well, you know if you're putting sin to death. But what verse 14 is adding, though, is that the same ones who are doing that are sons of God. Sons of God. What an incredible statement that is. A son of God. Now, verse 15 goes on to say, if you've received the Holy Spirit, uh, sorry, it says you've received the Spirit of adoption as sons. And in many ways, this is actually the most important ministry that the Holy Spirit has in our lives. Uh, His presence guarantees that you are God's sons. God's sons. Uh, To be adopted as sons, that's actually the highest privilege or the absolute pinnacle of our present experience of salvation in Christ. It's, It's the absolute capstone of being someone who's saved by Jesus. See, up until now in Romans, we've really been talking mainly about uh, justification. And justification is a word that comes from the courtroom. It means that God, as judge, he declares you righteous in his sight through faith in Jesus. And justification includes the forgiveness of sins. It includes uh, being accepted by God, it includes being reconciled to Him. So when you're justified, you're no longer God's enemies, you're now His friends. But when you're adopted as God's Son, that's something totally new in addition to everything else you've received in Jesus. To be adopted as a son, it's, it's almost like you know, the, the judge declares you righteous and then he says, oh, by the way, I see you're, you're homeless. I see you're an orphan. Why don't you come back to my house and I'll adopt you as my son and you can share in everything that I own. That's the picture. See, to be adopted means we relate to God not just as a judge who has forgiven us, but we relate to him as a, as a father who loves us and cares for us. And the pledge of our adoption, or the guarantee is the Holy Spirit in your life. The pledge of adoption. And it's adoption as sons. Now, why do I keep saying sons? Am I trying to exclude the women here today? No, not at all. I'm saying sons because that's actually what the passage says. And the reason it says sons is not to exclude women, but actually to show how men and women have an incredible privilege by having the Holy Spirit. Because in first century Rome, when Paul wrote this letter, being a son back then did have more privileges than being a daughter. It's just the way it worked in that culture. Uh, To be a firstborn son meant that that was the one who would inherit all of the father's estate. Daughters didn't inherit back then, only sons did. And so what Paul does when he talks about we're now adopted by God, he says that you're all sons, okay, men and women, boys and girls. You're all considered sons of God. Why does he say that? Because he wants you to realize that you share all of the privileges of being a child of God. Okay, it's not just the, the fellas who, who get the inheritance. Everyone does. By using sons, Paul is saying that everyone has equal status in the family. Every single one. See, all who have the Holy Spirit are all considered God's sons, which means equal status. It means you're going to get the inheritance, which we'll talk about later. But the guarantee is you've got the Holy Spirit. So that's the guarantee. And just to underscore the security of being children of God, notice in verse 15, it contrasts the status of sons to that of being a slave. So verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now I want you to imagine um, a first century Roman home. And in this home there are two boys. One is a slave, the other is a son. And the slave, he knows that the only way he can maintain his place in that home is through obedience. The only way he can he can know that he won't be rejected or cast out onto the street or sold off to another owner, the only way is by working for it, making sure he keeps the rules, does the work. Otherwise, he'll be cast out. And he knows that ultimately he doesn't belong. He's not part of the family. And so all of his work... It's all done out of fear, fear of punishment, fear of being rejected, fear of being cast out. And see, someone who doesn't know the gospel, that's what it feels like with God. That's the kind of relationship it feels like, and it doesn't work because you don't belong. But to be a son, to come into this relationship through the gospel of being a a son of God, what is it like to be a son in the family? You're never worried that you're going to be cast out one day. You know, even if you make mistakes, you're not going to think, oh, no, now my father's going to chuck me out on the street or he's going to sell me off to someone else. You don't have that fear. Why? Because you belong, because you're a child. And the father loves you unconditionally, he's not going to throw you out. Now, does that mean you just think, oh, good, I can live anywhere I like? Of course not. Why? Because he's your father. You love him. You want to do what pleases him. But you're not doing it out of fear. You're not doing it out of fear of punishment or fear of rejection. All of that's been taken away in Christ. And so, therefore, if you are a son, you are free. You're free to belong. You're free to to obey without fear. You're free to love the father and free to be loved. That's the the wonderful status of being sons of God. And you all are sons. All who have the Holy Spirit are sons of God. So the Spirit, what does He do? He enables us to kill sin. He gives us the pledge of sonship. The third thing we see in this passage, though, is that the Spirit enables us to enjoy all the privileges of sonship. All the privileges. And you can see that in verses uh, 15 to 17. Uh, There's actually three privileges here. And the first privilege that we have as children of God is full access to our Father. Full access. And you see that at the end of verse 15, where it says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? Abba is the Aramaic word for father, except that it's a word that's most likely um, invented by toddlers. Okay, Abba. It's a word that you know a toddler can say. And uh, it's, it's kind of like our um, word for, you know, little kids don't go around saying, hey, father. <laughs> father sounds so formal. And what do kids say? Dad, dada, daddy. That's the idea here. And so it's a very personal term. This this implies, you know, close relationship. There's no formality. It's all informal. It's all personal. And uh, this, this title, Abba, it implies deep dependence. It implies trust. It implies security. It implies warm embrace. And when you apply that to God, you know, think about it. The God of the universe, the God who's so much bigger than we could ever imagine, who rules over all things, the God who is holy, who dwells in unapproachable light. We can go to him and say, hey, Dad. (laughs) Hey, Dad, I need this. (laughs) That's what it's saying. You, You can't get more accessible than this. This is the relationship you have to the God of the universe. To be able to call him Dad. And notice how it says um, the Spirit enables us to cry about that, that word cry, whenever it's used in the Bible, it actually means a cry of distress. So, what does a child of God instinctively do? Instinctively cries out in distress to God. That's just, it happens just naturally. That's another way you know you're a child of God. There's just this instinctive. Turning to Him, you know, whenever you feel threatened, whenever you feel distressed, whenever you feel worried or anxious or troubled or afraid, you can cry out to God and know for sure that He hears you. Okay, you don't have to set up an appointment with Him. You've got full access. You can just barge in any time of the day, any time of the night. You know that God will hear you. Uh, the other thing about this word Abba The reason why Paul used the Aramaic term and not the Greek term, because he's writing to the Romans, most of them spoke the Greek language. So why did he use the Aramaic term? It seems the only reason he retained that is actually because of its association with Jesus. Remember on the night that Jesus was about to go to the cross? Remember how he was deeply distressed in that garden? And he cried out? What did he cry? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now that must have stunned the disciples who were listening in because they'd never heard anyone speak to God like that before. Abba, Father. It's like saying, Dad, help. It was unheard of. See, that that just showed the disciples the, the level of intimacy that the Son of God had with his Father. But then by taking this term, a Father, and saying, hey, all believers can address God in that exact same way that the Son of God addressed, then we realise, hey, we have the very same intimacy with the Father that God's own Son has. Okay, hey, you think about what kind of relationship does, does the Son of God have with his Father? You know, There's no closer relationship, and yet this is saying that you in Christ have that relationship. Okay, you have that intimacy with the Father that God's own Son did. That's access, access to God. Uh, another privilege we have is the privilege of um, deep assurance, and you see that in verse 16, because here it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. Uh, now, no, knowing that you're a child of God is something that we can all know by faith. right? We have the gospel. The gospel assures us that Christ has taken away all of our sin, made us his own, made us children of God. And so we can know that by faith. But what verse 16 is saying is the Spirit, he comes alongside of us and confirms that to us. He bears witness with our spirits. And notice how Paul writes, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. He uses the word with. He doesn't use the word to, but it's with. And the idea here, it seems to come from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, verse 15, uh, which is a verse about how to establish facts, especially in, in cases of law. Okay, how do you how do you establish a fact? No fact can be established unless there are two or more witnesses. That seems to be the idea in verse 16. It's saying that you know, as, as believers, we know we're children of God. But on top of that, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and he bears witness and that's the second witness and that establishes the fact without any doubt can you imagine a court case and you've got one witness and they're saying you know I saw this and everyone's like okay there's one witness but then someone else comes in someone known to be completely trustworthy and they come in and they say yeah it's true I saw it too all of a sudden the court is like righto that's it verdict's done now we know the facts. That's, that's what it's saying about the Holy Spirit. He comes into your life and he bears witness, says, yes, you are a child of God. That puts the matter beyond doubt. The assurance of being God's child. Now, how does that work in practice? Is that an audible voice? Is it some certain feeling? You know, is it when the um, hairs um, stand up? Is that is that what it means that the Spirit bears witness? No, it's actually... It's actually the Spirit's inner witness of taking God's Word, taking God's promises, and making them personal. Okay, The Spirit always works through the Word. And so just for example, you know, in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the Spirit bears witness, what He does is He makes that statement, not just a statement of fact, He makes it a, a personal statement. So when you hear there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, when the Spirit bears witness, you know that that statement is spoken about you personally. Okay? You feel like that's, that statement was written just for you. That's how the Spirit bears witness. He does it through the Word. And that's the deep assurance that we have. So the Spirit, He gives us access, He gives us assurance, but finally, He gives us an incredible future. And so verse 17 says, If we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I wonder, if, have you ever imagined what it would be like to be um, the son of a billionaire? Now, I think Elon, does Elon Musk have children? I think he's got a few. They're named like X, Y, and Z or something. Um But could you imagine being a a son of Elon Musk and all your life you're thinking, you know, my name's in the will, so one day I'm going to inherit everything he's accumulated. But then just imagine, though, imagine you're this um, young fella and Elon Musk meets you and he says, hey, I like you. I'm going to write you into my will so that you're going to be an heir of my whole estate along with my son. Now, what would that make you? That would make you a fellow heir. Right in verse 17 is saying, "That's actually what God has done with us. Because his own son owned, you know he was the inheritor, He owns the whole earth. And what God has done, He said, "Hey, I like you, not because you're likable, <laughs> but because I love you. And I've written you into my will. Therefore you're a fellow heir. you're going to receive everything that belongs to Jesus. all of it. It's all yours. What's the guarantee? The guarantee is the down payment that you've already got, and that's the Holy Spirit. See, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing to know. Uh, It does say that the path to that inheritance is through suffering, like it was for Jesus, and we're going to talk about that next time. But what this is saying is that you are in a position a position that is just beyond imagination. How could we be children of God? How could we be written into the will? Why would God do that to us? What have we ever done for him? See, it's grace. This is the, 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 really, the, like I said, the capstone of the gospel. That Christ has saved us, justified us. He's made us children of God. If you're a child, you have nothing to fear ever. You don't have to fear being lost. You don't have to fear being rejected because you're loved from all eternity and will be loved through all of eternity. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage, This just, just dripping with Uh, truth, encouragement. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, though we should have been cast out, that you welcomed us in and made us your children. Lord, help us to understand the depths of that. We pray that every day we would wake up and remind ourselves that we have this incredible privilege. Help us to make the most of that, Father, to enjoy our relationship with you, to get to know you more, and Father, we pray that uh, even in uh, difficulty, even in trials, we would always remember that we go through these as your children and so we're never, we're never uh, left alone. Uh, we always have you as our Father. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.